0: If you believe the Bible, then you have to believe in something called the doctrine of election. It is commonly called predestination. Now, actually, that subject is bigger than the Bible. Uh, When I was in college, I minored in philosophy, and actually it is a philosophical issue. It goes by different names, but they still have to grapple with the same kind of concept. From a biblical point of view, it comes down to this. On one page, the Bible teaches that God chooses some people to be saved. Now, if you believe the Bible, you have no choice because that's stated in the Bible. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it makes the statement, that God chose, quote, you for salvation, end of quote. So that's not a debatable issue. That is clearly there. The debate is how do you explain it? And that's where Christianity gets divided into two schools of thought. There are philosophical parallels to this. But sticking with the Bible, From a biblical point of view, some theologians say that God chose you based on the fact that he knew who would believe and who wouldn't, so he chose those who believe, and they have a verse for that. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter says we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. On the other extreme of the spectrum there are those who say no it isn't that God saw that you were going to do something God did this solely on his own and they have a verse they point to Ephesians chapter 1 which says having predestinated us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So Paul seems to be saying that the basis on which God chose people is something within himself. It's just what pleased him. Now that's the debate. They have uh, theological names, those on the side of... uh, God foreknew what you were going to do, are called Arminians after Arminius. And those who say, no, God did it, and he did it based on something within himself, are called Calvinists because of a man named John Calvin who first delineated that doctrine in modern times. So here's my question. Who's right? Is Peter right? And it's based on foreknowledge or is Paul right that it's based on the good pleasure of God's will how would you like for me to solve that if I do that uh, and to the satisfaction of all the theologians I would be considered a very bright man indeed this is one of the great battles of theology Christians of all stripes have battled this for centuries So I'm gonna wade into the water because I'm teaching the book of Genesis and it comes up in the book of Genesis. So I think we need to consider what Genesis has to say and even beyond that, what the scripture says. Uh, I have to tell you that I've been on both sides of this argument. Uh, As a young Christian, I adopted one and then years later, I adopted the second, and since then I've put the whole thing in focus. And I'm telling you, this is an extremely complex, difficult, controversial subject. Are you interested? Yeah. You would love for me to solve that problem, wouldn't you? All right. Let's see if we can uh, come to some biblical perspective. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 25, Genesis chapter 25. Now we've looked at the first part of this chapter, so I'm going to pick it up at verse 12, and what I want you to notice is that verse 12 says, this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. Now, drop down to verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Now, let me pause just a second and suggest that in the latter part of this chapter, there are two points, both of which begin with the phrase, this is the genealogy of. Now, if you've been tracking with me through the book of Genesis, you know that we have seen this expression before. As a matter of fact, I think, many have suggested, I'm not alone in this, that that, in a sense, is Moses' outline for the book of Genesis. That little expression appears 11 times. The last time we saw it was back in chapter 11 where it was the genealogy of Abraham's father. And so from that point until we get to Genesis 25-12, that huge portion of Scripture is on that one concept of God telling us about the genealogy of Abraham's father and what happened to it. Now what makes that interesting is that in this case, The next division goes from verse 12 to verse 18, and that's it. Then he introduces another subject. So what's going on? Well, in this case, in verses 12 to 18, the Lord is telling us about the descendants of Ishmael. Now, he tells us in verse 12 very clearly that Ishmael... Was Abraham's son but not through Abraham's wife remember the story Uh, Sarah couldn't get pregnant and so she said well here's my handmaid Uh, have a child by her and according to the rules and regulations of that day if that were to happen that son would be Abraham's heir and God had promised I'm gonna make you a great nation well he couldn't do that without a son so he thought that was a great idea, and he had a son by Sarah's, his wife's, handmaid, Hagar, and that son was named Ishmael. Now, that is critical to what's going on in this passage for this reason. What he does in verses 13 through 18, basically, is he says in verse 13 and these are the names of the sons of Ishmael and he lists them if I read them they would mean virtually nothing to us but these are the children of Ishmael then it says in verse 17 these are the years of the life of Ishmael 137 years he breathed his laugh died and gathered to his people now What is the significance of this small passage in the overall book of Genesis? It is this. Prior to this chapter, back in chapter 15, I'm sorry, chapter 17, God promised that Ishmael would produce descendants that would become nations. Matter of fact, that's repeated in chapter 19, that out of Ishmael would become many nations. And what this is telling us is the next step. Sure enough, Ishmael had 12 sons, and they all went out and eventually became different nations in what we would call today the Middle East. So, drop down to verse 17. It says, Ishmael was 137 years old when he died. And verse 18 says, uh, He died in the presence of his brethren. Now, that is a difficult little phrase to translate from the Hebrew text. Uh, died is not the normal word for died. Matter of fact, it's the word for something like down or settled down and the little expression that's translated of all of his brethren is translated literally to the east so this passage may be telling us and many scholars think it is that what happened is Ishmael's descendants settled down in the east in other words these became the Arab tribes The descendants of Ishmael became the Arab tribes. So what this is telling us is that the Lord fulfilled his promise. And that's the point of verses 12 to 18. God promised that Ishmael would produce sons that would produce nations. And this passage is telling us he had 12 sons. They settled in the east, and later we find out they became what we call today the Arabs. The Arabs looked to Abraham as their forefather. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, uh, it's one of the most interesting little quirks of history that one of the most famous men in all of history is Abraham. The Jews looked to him, which is what we're going to see in a minute. The Arabs looked to him, and so do the Christians. We claim kinship with him because he was the father of the faith. He was the man who trusted God. And that's the uh, cry of the Christian, and so we trace our lineage back to Abraham. Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, which is the whole basis of the Christian doctrine of justification by faith. But here's what you need to know. The first part of this passage is telling us what happened to the descendants of Ishmael. And the answer is, they became the Arab nations to the east of Palestine. All right. Now it gets real interesting. Let's look at the second part of the passage. Verse 19. And this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac. Now again, prior to this, God said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. He said that in chapter 15. He said that in chapter 17. He said that in chapter 18. He repeatedly said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations through your wife, Sarah not through her maid, through her. And so this passage is telling us that these are the genealogies of Isaac, Abraham's son, that he begat through his wife. Verse 20, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, his wife. So uh, we're going to go from his birth, verse 19, all the way to the day he got married. And when he got married, he was 40 years old. Look at verse 21. Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. All right. He got married, and they were not able to have children. And all of this is skipped over rather briefly Rather than going into any detail at all, it simply says he was born, he got married, and they couldn't have children. That's the point of these verses. Now, we should already know by now from reading the book of Genesis, this is the same thing that happened to Abraham, his father. Uh, Sarah couldn't have children. That was the fiasco I just explained about her maid. Uh, But from a spiritual point of view, this is a test. God said, you are going to become the father of many nations through Sarah. Well, that means you got to have a son, and they had a son, his name was Isaac. Well, that means Isaac has to have a son. And he gets married to Rebekah, and they have no children. So this is a test of... Faith. Now, there is a sense in which all of life is a test. What you are going through right now is a test. The test is, are you going to believe God and what he said and learn from this test and grow from this test? Or are you going to try to figure it out on your own and ignore the Lord and what he said? until you encounter the next test this is a test of your faith as to whether or not you're going to trust the Lord now that's the situation Isaac's in and it's the situation we're all in whether you are aware of that or not that's what's going on put your finger in Genesis 25 and look at 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 and look at verse 8 Paul said for we do not want you to be ignorant brethren of Our trouble which has come to us in Asia That we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despised even of of despair, even of life. Now, pause. Do you hear what Paul's saying? I want you to know what happened to me. I got into such a problem, he calls it trouble, that I was burdened beyond measure. That whatever trouble he's talking about, it was bigger than he could handle. He didn't have the strength to handle it. So he says clearly, Beyond measure, above strength. The Lord, if you are His child, is going to put you in a situation that it is beyond your strength. Now, why would He do that? Look at verse 9. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. He says, we were, in verse 8, we were despaired even of life. This was a life and death situation. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Did you see that? That verse explains why God lets you get into trouble that's bigger than you. Why he allows problems to come into your life that you can't solve. Why there are catastrophes in your life that's beyond your means to handle or resolve. It's a test, folks. It's a test. As to whether you're going to try to figure it out on your own or whether or not you're going to trust the Lord. And Paul says that very clearly in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. I was in a problem that was beyond my strength, and the Lord let that happen so, we, to, so whether, to see whether or not I would trust me and my ingenuity or him? If you're going to grow spiritually, you're going to have to learn to trust the Lord. Now that shouldn't be as any surprise to those who've trusted Christ. We trust him to get us to heaven. Now the issue is, are you going to trust him to get you through life? And that's the big issue here. So Back in Genesis chapter 25, Isaac had a problem. He and his wife, God made this promise that uh, you're going to become a great nation. That means i got to have a son. i got to have an heir. And she couldn't get pregnant. This went on for 20 years, by the way. 20 years. Think about that. Think about trying to get pregnant for 20 years. I've known couples that had difficulty and gone on for five and ten years, twenty years, think about it. They usually give up by that time. Who else had this problem? Abraham. And he failed the test. I just explained that. Instead of trusting the Lord to give him a son through his wife Sarah, even if he had to work a miracle to do it, He spent one night in a tent, and that produced the Arabs, and the Jews and the Arabs have been at it ever since, all because Abraham spent one night in a tent with a maid. Now, Isaac, are you going to follow in the footsteps of your father? What are you going to do? Well, look at this verse. Genesis 25, verse 21 says... Isaac pleaded with the Lord uh, for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea. Unlike his father, Isaac passed the test. What did he do? He prayed. And I it doesn't give us the prayer, but you can only imagine. Lord, you promised. You promised that I would produce descendants that would become a great nation, in this case, the nation of Israel. So, Lord, uh, you got to do something. And the Lord heard his prayer, and his wife got pregnant. Now, as they say in the movies, the plot really thickens. Look at verse 22. And the children, I'm going to the verse 21. His wife conceived, verse 22, and the children, whoa, huh? The children struggled together within her. The children, plural? And she said, If all is well, why am I having this problem? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Now, she has twins. And all she knows is they are kicking and screaming in the womb. Uh, They're struggling. Uh, Matter of fact, um, I've I've had ladies tell me this. I do not know about this from firsthand experience. (laughs) But um, I've had mothers tell me that, that had multiple children. Uh, Some children were in the womb, Uh, some of their children were real quiet. You know? And others kicked and kicked and kicked. Well, she's got two in there, and they're struggling. So she's saying, what in the world is going on? She has no idea that she's pregnant with twins. So she inquired of the Lord. No. She had a problem, and what did she do with it? you pray. James chapter 1 says, count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of trials, knowing that the trying of your faith produces endurance. It's translated patience. It should be translated endurance. And then in verse 5 of that chapter, he says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask. Pray. When you don't know what's going on, pray. Get your nose in the book so you can get God's perspective on what's going on in your life. So he she, I should say, in this case, prays, and the Lord said to her, and this is where it gets interesting: Two nations are in your womb; two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the other, and the older, shall serve the younger. All right. Sarah, got some news for you. Congratulations, you have twins. And these twins are going to produce uh, great nations. That's what's going to happen. Actually, he told her a number of different things in this passage. He he told her, for example, that um, he told her more than that she was going to have twins. He told her that the two would both become nations, Secondly, one nation would be stronger than the other nation. And thirdly, the younger of the two twins would be the stronger, and the older would serve the younger. And that's the problem. Because in the ancient world, the heir was the oldest. Normally, the oldest was the heir to receive all of the inheritance of the father. Matter of fact, some of the other children may have gotten some of the inheritance, but the oldest got a double portion of the inheritance. He was considered the heir. And so the Lord says, you have twins, and instead of the older being the heir, the younger is going to be the heir. Now, how did we determine that? God chose Isaac and God then said you're gonna have two sons they're gonna get named in a minute and I'm choosing which one's gonna be the heir so this becomes an illustration of God's election Uh, so this passage is really important it gets quoted in the New Testament by the way and we need to consider several things for one thing Uh, I think I should point out that I think this passage indicates that a child's temperament is uh, indicated to the mother even in the womb. Would you mothers agree with that? All the mothers are shaking their head yes. You have to have more than one kid to appreciate that. You have to have two or three, and the more the merrier. And I don't know how many times mothers have told me, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. This kid was an active Kid, before he ever breathed his first breath of air. All right, so that's one thing I think this passage indicates. They had different temperaments. The other is that the, these two sons, as we're going to see, produced Edom and Israel. Um, and Israel uh, had the priority over Edom, just as this passage says. Um, The younger one not only produced Israel, but, and this is very important, the line of the Messiah. And that's what's really going on in the book of Genesis and in the whole Hebrew Scriptures, that God is selecting, he's choosing, he's electing uh, a line out of which will come the Messiah. But the greatest truth here is that God sovereignly chose, as I mentioned, Paul quotes this passage in the book of Romans. He says the younger owed his selection, I'm quoting Romans chapter 9, not to the natural order or to human will but to to divine election. Paul uses that argument in Romans chapter 9. God sovereignly chooses some people. He chose Isaac, and as we'll see in a minute, and of his sons he chose Jacob, hence the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God sovereignly chose that out of the natural order. He did not follow the custom of the day, the natural order. He sovereignly stepped in and said, this is the way it's going to be. He is going to be the heir. That's nothing more than the sovereign election of God. One author has said, the gist of Genesis' account is that Esau, the more vigorous of the two boys, was born first, but he was not God's choice for carrying on the Messianic line. He was a natural choice being the firstborn. He was his father's choice, as the subsequent events will indicate but he was not God's choice. God chose Jacob. This fact teaches us that God has a sovereign right to choose whom he will and to reject whomsoever he wills. Now that's the doctrine that gives a lot of people a hard time. That sounds unfair. Hang with me. We're not done. But just know that that truth that God sovereignly chooses some individuals is in the Bible it's inescapable I don't know how you uh, get around that the Bible clearly indicates that all right there's more the story continues let's uh, pick the story up at verse 24 so when the days were fulfilled for her to give birth, and indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Esau means hairy, by the way. Afterward, his brother came out. Who's the oldest? Esau. All right. Afterwards, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And the Hebrew word Jacob means heel holder. So Esau came out first, and Jacob grabbed his heel and came out holding his brother's heel. That's an interesting little twist. Isaac, verse 26, was 60 years old when she bore them. So... He got married when they were 40. And 20 years later, she has twins. Verse 27 And the boys grew, and Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. These two boys were radically different. One, Esau was the outdoorsman. He was the hunter, a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Jacob, he was an indoorsman. He stayed with his mommy in the tent. That's what that verse says, right? So let's talk about this for a second. By putting a whole bunch of passages of scripture together, we know that Abraham died when these twins were about 15 years old. That means they knew their grandfather and no doubt heard from him the promises God had made about Abraham becoming a great nation. They heard that directly from Abraham. But the real interesting fact is that Esau and Jacob were radically different. Esau, was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. In other words, he was an outdoorsman, a hunting hunter, roaming the fields. He has been described as one having loving excitement, activity, change, and freedom, and consequently being undisciplined. Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents, the Hebrew word translated mile means complete, perfect, sound, wholesome. It is used of being morally innocent and having integrity. It probably means civilized and domesticated. He's been described as a sound, solid, level-headed, dependable fellow, an even-tempered, resolute man with things under control. He was definitely an indoorsman. he stayed in the tent as a matter of fact the expression dwelling in the tent literally translated means sitting in the tent Jacob was a whole body that's what's going on here the two were utterly opposite Esau became a nomadic hunter and Jacob remained in his tent so we have two boys And they are radically different. Ever known two brothers that were radically different? That's almost like asking, have you ever known two brothers? That happens a lot. At any rate, it happened in this case. So, verse 28 says, And Isaac, the father, loved Esau because he ate his game. And Rebekah loved Esau. Jacob! Uh oh. Oh boy. Do parents have favorites? Yeah, I've heard, I, I, I've never heard, a, saying, no, I've rarely heard a mother admit that. I've heard many children complain about that. <laughs> the children want to complain. Yeah, she had a favorite, or he had a favorite. They say, no, 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 we loved each one equally. Matter of fact, my brother and I went through that, and he claimed all of his life that I was the favorite, and I used to defy him, and I'd say, no, 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 brother. Mother loved us both equally. And his illustration was, well, we'd go to the store, and you'd get uh, two somethings, and I'd only get one. Say, brother, she gave us a dollar and I bought two things costing 50 cents apiece, and you bought one thing costing a dollar. She gave us the boat the same amount of money. But I must confess that years later, some things happened, and I think my brother was right. I think I was my mother's favorite. She, um, she was favorite. I was her favorite. And we, we now joke about that, but at one point it was very painful, especially for my brother. At any rate... Um, they chose sides and the father liked the outdoorsman the man's man and mommy she liked the homebody and that's what all this comes down to that's their choices it wasn't God's choice that was their choices all right let's pick up the story is this getting interesting Isn't this fun yeah. all right keep going. Now, verse 29, Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. Would you like to know what the stew was? Does the stew interest you? Well, he tells you what it was in verse 34, and Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Do you like lentils? I had lentils for lunch today. We eat lentils a lot. They're very, very, I recommend lentils. They're very healthy for you. Even got protein in them. At any rate, Esau has been out in the field, no t- hunting, working, no telling what all, and he comes in and he is famished. He is starving to death. The text says he was weary. So, uh, he's also an impatient fellow. As I mentioned earlier. Verse 30. And Esau said to Jacob, uh, uh, to Jacob, please feed me with those red, that red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Eden. Red. And Jacob said, All right, I'll give you some of my lentils. You sell me your birthright. Ooh. You're going to sell your birthright for a bowl of lentils? Are you out of your mind? Do you know how rich your father is? He's an extremely wealthy man, Abraham. And Isaac inherited all of that. And now Esau is in line for that. God chose Jacob And now conniving Jacob is saying, yeah, you know, I'll give you you a bowl of soup. Give me the birthright. Make me the heir. That's what this is about. I get the double portion. I get to be the heir of the estate. Would you uh, give somebody a bowl of soup for all that money? You bet. Would you... Give your wealth away for a bowl of soup. Not in your right mind. Well, look what he did. Verse 32, and Esau said, look, I'm about to die. I'm famished. I'm starving to death. If you don't give me some food, I'm going to die. What is a birthright to me? And there's all kinds of ways to Interpret this. Maybe he's saying, I'm gonna die anyway. What, what good's the birthright gonna to do to me? Maybe that's the point. Or, and this is probably closer to the truth, I don't care that much about birthright. I want, listen to me very carefully. I want to be satisfied right now. I want to live for the moment. I don't care about the future. I'm going to sacrifice the future on the altar of the immediate, which is what every drug addict, alcoholic, sex addict says. I don't care about the consequences. I want what I want and I want it right now. So, shrewd Jacob says, verse 33, swear to me. As on this day, so he swore to him and sold his birthright to his brother Jacob, and Jacob gave Esau bread and a bowl of lentils. Then he ate and drank and arose and went his way, and look at the last statement in this chapter, and Esau despised his birthright. Ah, he didn't think it was worth anything. That was of nothing to him. As a matter of fact, the word despised means worthless. He thought the birthright was worthless. That was nothing to him. Actually, it could also mean contemptible. He looked on the birthright as something that was contemptible. Now, that says something, About his attitude toward God's Word because God said, this is what I'm going to do, and naturally he should have inherited that promise. But he rationalized and said, I'm about to die, whatever. That inheritance isn't worth much. Let me have some pleasure today Let me fill my stomach right now. So he sold his birthright. The writer of Hebrews calls Esau a profane person, meaning a godless, irreligious person. The lesson of Esau is more, however, than just a sensual, sinful man. It is that he valued momentary pleasure more than eternal things. Somebody has said this, how often do we put the question to ourselves, what is my mess of porridge? Is it important to verbalize the question? We are in constant danger of being tempted to give up something very precious in order to indulge a sudden strong desire. The desire may involve greedy eating and drinking, lusting after money or material things, letting loose our anger in abandonment of reason, succumbing to depression without check, cursing God in despair or disappointment without even thinking of the trap Satan set for Job and is setting for us giving in to a sweeping sexual desire without waiting for the right framework, the mess of porridge that is dangerous to you and to me in any temptation to gratify the feelings of the immediate moment in a way that shows we despise the promises of the living God for our future, end of quote. That is what Esau did. He lived for the moment and despised God's promise. Now, that's the end of the story. Let's see if we can uh, draw some things out of this. I began by suggesting that this really comes down to the whole subject of election, predestination. Is it God's choice or is it our choice? This passage is teaching that God sovereignly makes choices. He said, I choose Jacob. And this passage teaches the people involved made choices. Ooh, clearly. This passage illustrates God chose. And just as clearly this passage illustrates they chose. Very, very interesting. The the scripture does not give us a reason why God chose Jacob over Esau. What we do know is his choice did not rest on the superior merits of Jacob but on his his divine prerogative. He just did it because he wanted to do it. And that is a truth in the Bible. Frankly, it's a truth in life. It's just a reality. Uh, so, let me see if I can lay this out. But Jacob and Esau made choices. So on the one hand, this God makes choices, and he does it sovereignly, doesn't tell us why. And on the other hand, they made choices. And both of those things are true. Someone has said, because Esau despised his birthright, Jacob obtained it and became what God had promised he would become, the stronger son who would lead others Explicit moral commentary is rare in the Bible. So the writer's inclusion of it here marks something about Esau that he did not want the reader to miss. He wanted to emphasize he made a choice because he despised the birthright. So here's my conclusion. You ready? Is it that God chooses or we choose? When it comes to something like salvation? Answer, you ready? Both. Both are true. This illustrates it. A great illustration of it. Both are true. How do you explain that? Let's talk about it. John chapter 6 has a crowd that is told that the Father gives some to the Son. That's in six thirty-seven and 39. And no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verses 44 and 65. Yet the crowd is constantly urged to believe in Christ. In verse 27, 29, 35, 40, 47, 50, 51, 54, and 58. So in John chapter 6 it says... Nobody can come to the Father unless the Holy Spirit draws him. But you've got to believe. All in the same chapter. They're even told, the one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. It's up to you. If you choose to trust Christ, you'll be accepted. But I thought you said God chooses. He does. But you've got to choose. And both of those things are true. There is a balance in the Bible between an election election and free will. Both are taught, and both are true. One moment, Jesus says, in John chapter 5, you will not. And the next moment, he says, you cannot, in chapter 6. So both of those things are in the Bible. There is a blend and a balance between the two doctrines. The multitude is told about election of the Father, and yet they are invited to believe. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is one of many passages. I could have gone to John, but that would have um, taken too long to go through all of those verses. So I'm going to choose a passage that's really rather simple. Why don't you look at John chapter uh, first, Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse. Uh, where are we? Verse thirteen. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation. Stop. Do you see that? We need to give thanks to God. Because you who have trusted Christ, God chose you. Amen. If there is one thing you need to walk out of here with tonight, it's this. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, God chose you. You're special to him. If you've trusted Christ, it's because he chose you. Does that verse say that? That says it as clearly as anything in the Scripture. But keep reading. From the beginning, probably a reference to eternity past, he chose you for salvation through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Ah! The Holy Spirit has to work. And according to the Scripture, he convicts of sin. He enlightens us to the gospel. He draws us to Christ, but you have to believe. So there it is. All in one verse. God chose you. That's election, popularly called predestination. But you have to believe, and that's up to you. Matter of fact, verse 14 says, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of Jesus Christ. Now here it is. Real, short, and simple. As you know, the gospel is defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as the death and resurrection of Christ. So, the gospel, the, the word means good news. The good news that Jesus died for our sins and arose from the dead is proclaimed. And the Spirit of God works. But you have to believe. You hear that message and you say, yeah, Wow. I'm a sinner I need to be forgiven I don't know for sure I'm going to heaven but according to that message I can by trusting Christ it's a gift he gives you if you trust him for it so you say yes I'm a sinner I believe Jesus died for my sin I trust him as my Savior and BAM God says you're forgiven and I give you the gift of eternal life by the way that's a direct statement in the Bible Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians 2 says, both are true. God chose us, and yet we must believe the gospel. So when it comes to salvation, who chooses? God or the individual? And the answer is both. God chooses, God calls, God convicts, God converts, God crowns us with glory. Nevertheless, you must choose to trust Christ. Have I confused you so far? Both are true. Are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? Well, that's a more complicated subject than this, but I'm a Calvinian. I believe in both. Now, if you understand the Bible, this should not come as any surprise. So, let me explain that great is the mystery of godliness. How many gods are there? One. The Bible is emphatic about that, starting in Deuteronomy chapter six, there's one God. But the Bible also teaches there's a Trinity. Even the Hebrew Scriptures teaches that God has a son, like in Proverbs chapter 30. Now, wait a minute. There's one God, and there are three persons in the Godhead. Hmm. That means one plus one plus one equals one. I don't understand that, folks. That's beyond my comprehension. But I believe it. For that matter, I don't understand electricity either. I understand there's a debate. Do the electrons go down the side of the wire or through the middle of the wire? I don't know, and I don't think anybody else does either. But I know if I flip that switch, the light comes on. I know if I look at the scripture, it tells me there's one God and there's three persons in the Godhead. I don't know what you do with that. Who was Jesus Christ? Was he a man? Yeah. What percent? 70%? 80%? 50%? Seventy percent? 80 percent? 50 percent? A hundred. The Bible says, "In the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. John 1:1. Verse 14 says, "And the word, what's the word? Who's the word? God. And the word became flesh. God became flesh. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. That's the doctrine of the incarnation, a Greek word which means in the flesh. He's in the flesh. God. That's what makes Christianity so different. Wow. Let me see if I get this math straight. What percent man is he? 100. What percent God is he? Now, the last time I took a math course, 100 plus 100 equal 200. I don't get that matter of fact, I had a theology professor in seminary who said that was probably the most difficult doctrine in all the Bible to comprehend. It's called the hypostatic union. That's the theological word for it. I don't understand that. I really don't, but I believe it with all my heart and soul. That one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is God. Philippians chapter 2. Who wrote this book? Let's pick one book in the book. Romans. Who wrote Romans? Is this the word of God? So God wrote it, right? It starts out saying Paul wrote it. Now who wrote it? God or Paul? Now we're going to really have some fun, huh? You see, there's a lot of um, complexity to spiritual truth. That's what this is about. Both are true. Frankly, it all comes down to this. I cannot put the enormity of God in my pea-sized brain if I could God wouldn't be very big. Right? Right. So I simply have to say, I don't understand it, but that's what God has revealed, and I believe it. I believe there's one God in three persons. I believe Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man. I believe that Paul wrote Romans, and I believe God wrote the Romans. I believe that God chooses some to be saved, and I believe those chosen, those who are saved, have to choose to trust Christ. Let me illustrate. The problem is not the doctrine, the problem is me. The problem is not the doctrine, the problem is my perception of the doctrine. It's like a coin. Suppose I had a quarter. I could look at one side and I'd say, that's heads. And I can flip it over and say, that's tails. But I can't see them both at the same time. And that's the problem. I can clearly see one. I can clearly see the other when it comes to these doctrines. But I can't see them both at the same time. What I can do is give thanks. That God has chosen us to reveal his son to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us your revelation of who you are, who your son is, how you work. Father, thank you for choosing us. We're your inheritance, according to Paul, and we thank you for that. Lord, give us the sense to recognize that you are God. In Jesus' name, amen.